Welcome back, everybody. This is part four of our continuing coverage of the Derek Chauvin trial with Professor David Schultz. We're going to pick up where we left off to discuss timelines, vantage points, use of force, and what it means if Mr. Morris Hall, who was with George Floyd during his arrest, does not testify at trial. There's lots to discuss. We now return to our episode, already in progress. That's a great segue into my next question about the timeline and fact elements that have been, you know, flushed out through these uh, these different camera angles that you were talking about. And I think that uh, one that really uh, resonated with me was the store clerk's testimony, kind of walking through some of the surveillance video and then talking about receiving the counterfeit bill. And it it, it started this this story a lot earlier than the 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 press and media is kind of really portrayed, in my opinion. And so anyway, Christopher Martin, uh, for the benefit of the audience, is a store clerk. And uh, he was the one that received the counterfeit bill from George Floyd. They kind of got all this started. And what I didn't know until we heard from him was that they tried on a couple occasions to bring George Floyd and uh, his friend back into the store to deal with this. And then only upon the second basically kind of uh, rejection of, of that offer to come and settle things out within the store. Then the manager decides to call the police. And one thing I didn't understand at the time was that this store has a policy that if an employee can't rectify, I guess they get this, this happens a decent amount. They have to have a policy, but if they can't get a counterfeit bill situation worked out, the employees on the hook for that. And so that kind of plays into the reason the police got involved and, you know, sort of walks through that. And on the surveillance video, we're getting this tour from Christopher Martin. You kind of see that um, you know George Floyd definitely acting a little different than other people you know certainly and then of course according to Christopher's testimony you know he he testified he thought he was high and so it definitely as you're saying professor kind of paints a different picture leading in to those events but um, you were talking about uh, some of that testimony from Lieutenant James Jeffrey Rugel from the Minneapolis Police Department talking about the camera systems and the body cams. And you're right. You know, that perspective changes when you when you hear the officers in their own voice and you see what's going on. You see the struggle. It definitely paints a different picture. And I think you're right. The defense is going to uh, focus on those elements. And so let, let's get to uh, you and I were doing a pregame about this and you you felt that this was very important. I agree with you. You know, there's been in the last couple of days a lot of talk about use of force and defense tactics. And we've heard from the police department itself. And so can you walk us through some of the important elements of that as as have been presented so far? Sure. Now, let's remember again that what's unique in this case, it's not one private citizen accused of killing another private citizen. It is or a private person killing another private person. It is a police officer accused of homicide. And the reason why this is important is that under uh, state law, not just in Minnesota, but across the country, police officers are given statutory authority to use force, including deadly force in the line of duty. At the same time, the U.S. Supreme Court has articulated the concept of qualified immunity for police officers, of which most states, including Minnesota, have incorporated into their law. Simply put, officers are given a lot of statutory and qualified immunity to use force for, among other reasons, um, to protect themselves, to protect the health and safety of others. And what the prosecution has sought to do is to pierce that immunity and to say that Chauvin did not act within sort of the the boundaries of what is considered to be protected activity by police officers under law 
or another way of formulating it also, he did not act in a way that a reasonable police officer would have acted in that situation. Because if he did act reasonably, then the defense is going to win. If the defense can show that Derek Chauvin acted reasonably, acted within that qualified and statutory immunity, he can't, he can't be found guilty. So what's happened for several days is that experts have come in from Minneapolis and elsewhere to testify regarding what is considered to be acceptable use of force. What are the protocols? When Chief Arredondo, um, the chief of police for Minneapolis came in and testified, this was unique. This is the first time that a police chief in America has ever testified against one of their own officers. What they were grilling him on were the protocols, procedures, how police officers are supposed to handle um, arrests, perhaps arrests for people who are resisting arrest, how people are supposed to, how police officers are supposed to handle situations when maybe people are ill, ODing or something like that. All for the purpose of showing what? That Derek Chauvin was not following appropriate police protocol. And if the prosecution can show that he was departing from what a reasonable officer would have done from acceptable protocol. They've taken away that statutory, that qualified immunity, and now they can begin to make the case for what? Criminal liability. And this is the part where I think Minneapolis was important in terms of what the police chief testifying to be able to say he wasn't following protocol. And I think the prosecution in the last several days did a very powerful job in taking a, a shot at that immunity. Because again, just to reiterate, unless they can show that he was acting beyond the bounds of immunity, they can't even get to the criminal liability issue. That's really interesting. So so basically, Professor, what you're saying is if, if the prosecution can show that that uh, statutory immunity did not apply, it basically makes their next steps in their job a lot easier, correct? Absolutely correct. And if they can't get through this hurdle, then whatever they do next doesn't matter. Think of what's going on here as a series of, of, let us say, maze tunnels or hoops to jump through. The first hoop to jump through is to get past the issue of qualified immunity for or statutory immunity for police officers. If they get through that hoop, then they have to go to the next hoop is to prove, in fact, that Derek Chauvin caused the death of George Floyd. If they get through that hoop, then they have have to establish the state of mind. If they can do all three of those and beyond a reasonable doubt, then they've won the case. But notice the sequencing and the prosecution understands that sequencing and it's following it. And so if you look at the steps from the progression of the trial, this is exactly what's, what they've been doing is going through these variety of hoops because they have to go through those hoops to win the case. For people watching this case, I think one of the things that, uh, if they're watching on TV, that is, uh, one of the things that's going to jump out to uh, to them is the amount of time that the court seems to uh, jump into objections and sidebars. And so during the course of this video, you'll see the sound goes blank and people put headsets on and they talk back and forth. And so I, I know that you and I talked about this earlier, but uh, you know, with, uh, with the judge jumping in, trying to keep some of these past experiences with police out of the testimony from some of the witnesses. But what are some of the other things? things that the uh, that from your observation that the judge has been very active in trying to keep out of the court testimony. Well, first off, again, you know, many of us have this image of trials by watching too many episodes on television of of court dramas. Oh of which what we can manage to wrap up a criminal trial in about 25 minutes, replete with a couple of commercials <laughs> in the process there. Um, so we're looking at real trials 
a real trial here, which is going on for several weeks. Which by by its, by normal comparison, this is long by a lot of criminal trials in the United States. And it's, again, it's very complex. There were a lot of pretrial motions about how much they could introduce regarding Derek Chauvin's past record, how much they could introduce regarding George Floyd's, let's say, criminal record, his drug use, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of the questions here and sidebars are about that. They're also about the way witnesses can testify or what they can actually attest to. And so, for example, there was one exchange that I thought was particularly interesting where the defense was talking to a um, a first responder and saying something to the effect of, have you responded to many other drug overdoses in, in, the, um, in the past? Objection. Sidebar. Restating of the question, have you responded to drug overdoses. And the reason why that's critical is notice how the way it was phrased the first time, trying to lead the jury into thinking, well, this is just another drug overdose. And so little subtle things like that in terms of how the defense and prosecution are probably what? Trying to lead the witnesses to get to a certain point and the judge is not letting them do that. Yeah, I think it's particularly pronounced uh, behind the plexiglass. I've seen a lot of frustration sort of uh, bubble up with the uh, the witness not knowing what to say. And so, you know, kind of feeling like they're answering the same question again, but it's just phrased a different way, but didn't really change the answer all that much. So really fascinating. So I want to close out on this, uh, Professor, uh, for this episode. I've got kind of a two-parter here for you. And so I guess we're getting near the end of the prosecution's case. We're going to start evolving into the defense's case. And so I guess... Part A of this question is what important factors can we expect to see in the days to come? And then I want to ask you about this. Morris Hall is a gentleman that was uh, in the car. He's George Floyd's friend, and he has decided not to participate. And so what should we make of that? Uh, what, what What's your analysis there? Okay, let's start first where we're going to go. We're getting to the point now where we're starting to get to the place where the medical experts are gonna come in from the prosecution and testify to the cause of death. This is gonna be fascinating because the official medical examiner for Hennepin County, Hennepin County is the county where Minneapolis is located. He said that the cause of death uh, was was cardiac arrest. The Floyd family had their own expert to say, no, it was asphyxiation. Defense is gonna say it is what? It is drug use, um, over OD, for example. And this is gonna be important because it's gonna be odd to see the prosecution arguing against its own medical examiner, but it's gonna be trying to make the case with five experts that at the end of the day, it was the knee on the neck that caused the asphyxiation um, that may have caused what the cardiac arrest or so forth um, that eventually led to his death. So it's gonna go shift, shift to the cause of death. Now, Maurice Hall is a fascinating person. He was in the car with George Floyd and he's, being asked to testify both by the prosecution and by the defense, he's invoked his Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination. Now, we don't know completely what he's going to testify regarding, but one of the 
allegations or rumors that's out there. And again, we're dealing a little bit of rumor at this point is that Mr. Hall has, let us say, an assorted past drug dealer, um, a variety of problems. It seems like he might have passed the, 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 the counterfeit bill to George Floyd. They might have been involved in a drug deal. We don't know at this point. There's some speculation that he might have given the drugs to George Floyd. And why all this is important, his attorney at one point said, we're invoking the Fifth Amendment that because if my client testifies, he could potentially be charged with third degree murder. And this is tantalizingly interesting because let's say he does testify. Let's say he does indicate that he gave George Floyd some drugs or something like that. What the defense is going to say is that, guess what? Who killed George Floyd? Who was the person who was the cause of death? It was Mr. Hall who sold him the drugs. Conversely, the prosecution, if they really want him to testify, they could grant him immunity so that he could testify. But they may be concerned that if he does testify, comes out about this information about the drugs or a drug deal or drug use or something like that, might this damage their case? And so his his status becomes a a fascinating persona and where the case goes forward. And the judge is trying to decide now, as we speak, you know, on Thursday the 8th, is he going to require him to testify? If so, what questions are in bounds or not in bounds and so forth? But he could potentially be an important witness. And just in the last day or so, we're also now getting some additional um, forensic evidence indicating in the car that him and Mr. Floyd were in, they have found fentanyl, some pills mixed with what some of George Floyd's saliva. This is going to be an interesting um, next few days in terms of where this forensic goes and what it means in terms of the prosecution and defense of the case. Wow. Wow. Sounds like a lot's coming our way here in a very short period of time. So we'll Professor, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate you being here, giving us a walkthrough and explaining everything in such great detail. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. It's always a pleasure to be here with you, too. And thank you to our sponsor, Noda. You can find them at trustnota.com forward slash legal. That's Noda spelled N-O-T-A. And last but not least, thank you to our team, producer Molly McDonough and our LTN audio crew for their continued hard work. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you.